The following presentation was recorded at the Newbury Buddhist Monastery, Victoria, Australia. Please visit our website at nbm.org.au. So welcome this morning to the uh, this live streaming from the from Newbury Buddhist Monastery. And today, thank you very much, Ignacio, for the, the slide. And for today, we are um, reflecting, I'm reflecting on Lynn Henderson. Lynn was the last surviving founder, of founding member of the BSV. And he died peacefully on the 13th of January after a short illness. In, and I think one week in hospital. And uh, also, um, with his uh, wife, Joan, and daughter, as I understand, Nairi present. And uh, Len was not aged 94, so it's a very decent age. So I'd like to begin this reflection by just uh, a warm welcome to you, Joan, uh, Joan Henderson and Nairi. This is, um, as I mentioned, Len's daughter, and also Len's grandson, Jameson, to welcome them on behalf of the BSV. We'd like to express our empathy and support for you because this is always difficult when we part from those that we're close to in, in this life. And this uh, reflection is offered as a gift to Len and, and to your family as well. And the BSV also uh, had a tribute to Len, and I think some of you will have seen it in the e-newsletter, which was a very nice one written by Adrian, the secretary. And the reason why today is we're having the talk today is, of course, it's the one month death anniversary for Len. And uh, any time that we remember somebody is, is a, a very good occasion to bring them to, to bring them to mind. And at the end of this talk, we'll dedicate uh, the merit from this talk and from any other uh, wholesome activities that we've done uh, to Len for a good rebirth. Um, and of course, in Newbury, we, after we heard the news, I think around the 19th of January, we started, uh, chanted uh, dedication of merit for Len for about a week after he passed away. And uh, um, together with the other founding members of the BSV, he really set, as Adrian mentioned, set the BSV Dummer Wheel in motion, which has continued to turn to this day. And uh, it's providing an opportunity for people to learn and practice the Buddha's teaching. So it's really um, ongoing. And uh, now we would like to show the, Ignacio, if you could show the slide of the founder, slide two. Um, I'll come back to this later too. So that shows uh, it's not actually, it's a larger group than the founders, because this was actually the slide photo um, of the foundation or establishment of the Feder Buddhist Federation of Australia. But in the photo, I don't know if you can see, there's Len Bullen. He's, he is actually the uh, official uh, founder of the BSV, and he passed away in 1984, aged 76. And Fred, he's... Uh, uh, let's see in the photo, I'm just trying to see. He is uh, he is a writer of the woman you can see in the photo. And on the left of that woman is Fred Whittle, who passed away in uh, 1995. And on the right side, 
uh, of uh, the photo. Next to Len Bullen is Les Oates, who passed away in 2013. And the little insert you can see in this slide is Sydney Hill when he was a monk. And he passed away on the 3rd of November 2020. And we did a reflection for his uh, life too. And Len Henderson, you can see, standing behind um, uh, Leslie Oates. Uh, on the right-hand side of that photo. And of course, as I mentioned, he passed away in, on the 13th of January 2022. And the only, only founding member that I really knew personally was Fred Whittle, um, whom I met in 1992 when I came to Melbourne. And also we had an, uh, a monk who also met, uh, uh, went to visit Sydney Hill in 2018 before he passed away. And uh, one thing I do notice with, with all the, the uh, founding members, they had long lives. Maybe the shortest life was Len Bullen, but everybody else, I think, made it to the 80s or 90s. And it reminds me, you know, and I think this is quite a nice thing that I, reminded me um, of the Ancestors Day celebration that I went to in Perth for the Cambodian Buddhist Society there. Every year they have a... Uh, uh, a ceremony and a celebration for their ancestors. And of course, it's to make merit for their departed ones, which is a, a wonderful thing, as well as to be grateful for the contribution of those people in, in their lives. And I think of Len as being a spiritual ancestor for, for us <laughs> at the BSP and probably other, many other Buddhists as well. Um, even though I, I, we may not have met him. And of course, um, this is quite a nice idea to have a, an annual uh, occasion where we remember those that have contributed to the Buddhist Society of Victoria, the founders, and of course, many other people that have made uh, the uh, Buddhist Society's continuation possible. And I know in uh, Sri Lanka, where I lived for almost 14 years, the Buddhist Publication Society, every year they have an annual um, ceremony, an offering of food, followed by Dhamma reflections and uh, then sharing of merit for those who have passed away. So I'd just like to mention the purpose of this reflection. Of course, being part of it is it in, it's, a, it's a means really to deal with the death of someone who we're close to in a skillful way, in a positive way. And one of the most important things um, to, in order to pay respects to somebody and to honour them is to remember them. So this, uh, this occasion is really uh, to remember the contribution, remember Len Henderson's uh, character and his contribution as a founder of the BSV. And uh, to really to consider that without him and the other founders, maybe the BSV would not have come into existence or continue to exist. Continuing to exist is actually more difficult. <laughs> and for those, uh, and of course, remembering Len, uh, for those who, who knew him, uh, he's still in this, when you bring him to mind, he's still in you, he lives in your mind. And you can do, you can do an experiment, just close your eyes for a minute, for those in the family particularly, and you can see Len and you can hear him. 
And also we don't know, but he may be aware of what we are doing in his name. Certainly some of the rebirth stories you, you hear, read, I've read some of these from Francis' story, um, show that people, that uh, when that person's passed away, they can actually uh, even attend their own funeral uh, and they can be aware. They can be around for some time. And the other aspect of paying respects and uh, paying honour to somebody, of course, is being grateful or thankful. And uh, that is part of how we can, we can, we can express our gratitude to Len and the other founders for their contribution. And in a real sense too, their contributions not only is that running committees, and that's wonderful that uh, they undertake the running of an organisation. Committee work is not easy. I certainly um, uh, think very highly of those that take undertake committee work and our present Buddhist Society of Victoria committee very much the work that they do. It's behind the scenes, you might say. But also Len was teaching and uh, so, and not only teaching, but giving an example to others as well. And this is really the heart of spiritual friendship, isn't it? You know, that's not only the words, but of course the example, that's, that is the uh, most important thing. It makes the most impact, doesn't it? And that's a uh, Kalyanamita. But this sense of gratitude is something the Buddha praised a great deal. And it's, a, it's something we can develop in our lives. You know, this katanyuta, this is the Pali word for it. Being grateful or thankful or appreciative for what has been done for us. And it's such a, a wholesome state of mind. And as Anjan Brahm calls it, it's like free happiness. So why not? <laughs> And, but the Buddha did note uh, that he did say that a grateful person is rare in this world. And I think if we miss out on opportunities to be grateful, we're really shortchanging ourselves, aren't we? We're missing out on this happiness from gratitude. And uh, especially for those who knew um, Len personally, and there'll be some members of the Buddhist society as well as uh, the family, as uh, well as yourself, Joan, Nairi, and Jameson. Um, be grateful for all the good qualities that he had and how he contributed to your lives, especially children, you know, for their parents, to, to be grateful for the opportunity to have a human rebirth. That's quite something, because the Buddha says that parents bring us up, feed us, and show us the world. And he said it's very difficult to repay our parents. And of course, we can all, uh, you can be grateful too for the time you spend together. Life is not long. It seems long at times, but, but really it passes very quickly. And when we are grateful, we're celebrating the life of the person who's passed away, who's died. And we, we don't, uh, we, we are grateful for what, we, what that person has shared rather than feeling sad and missing then or missing Len. So thank you so much, Len, for um, contributing to the Buddhist Society, enabling us to be here today, enabling everyone who's listening to this talk, watching this talk, to, to do so. But also today is the purpose of today is to give a gift of yes, we can now finish with the slide, I think. Thank you very much, Ignacio. Good. 
and go back to me now, and uh, to give a gift of good karma to Len, to our gift to him is to get dedicate uh, the goodness from uh, the today, from listening to this talk, maybe asking questions uh, about this uh, today, um, and to create uh, any of our actions really of body, speech, and mind to dedicate them to Len, to his memory, and uh, for his well-being. And this is really, isn't it, a, like a living memorial. And I think it's much better than a tombstone and all that, that sort of thing because this way we really honour the person when we do something good in their name. And I think this is why many people start foundations, you know, these foundations for charities, worthy causes, because it really perpetuates that, that goodness. They're, they're creating good karma. And this is a memorial to a person when they passed away. And of course, Len, he doesn't need anything material now. So this, uh, this good karma is something that can, uh, can bring happiness perhaps to Len if he can be aware of it. And of course, what it does for us, it, it can bring that sense of we can do something for him. And, uh, uh, so this is this very important quality, this gratitude um, and uh, offering um, the good karma we've done in memory of a person. Uh, so this is this is something, another aspect of why we're the purpose of today. And it's something that can be of benefit to those who pass away because they move on to a new life and maybe that happiness will uh, give them that extra um, energy for their new life. Now, I'd like to start with reflection at last, um, mentioning Len's character. I didn't know Len personally, so I, I can't say it from first hand, but I met Len, as it were, in a book by uh, Paul Croucher. It's called A History of Buddhism in Australia, 1848 to 1988. And I also met uh, Len, as it were, through Joan, his wife. Thank you, Joan, um, for uh, the talks we had. We had a couple of telephone conversations and his daughter, Nairi. Thank you very much. The information you gave, the eulogy you gave is included on our website, uh, a page on the website uh, for Newbury Buddhist Monastery um, uh, under the founding members of the BSV. So thank you for all that information. It's been lovely to meet uh, Len. I wish I'd met him in, uh, in the flesh, as they say. But uh, from, the, from what I've gathered, and uh, it's very, uh, the, the book, as I mentioned, Paul Croucher gives you this feeling too, Len was witty and a really good sense of humour. And Nairi told me he loved jokes and puns and things like the goons and Monty Python so on. And he was dedicated to learning. He was a lifelong learner. So he had this great interest in education, in learning, which is a, is a wonderful motivation for life. Because often people say, why are we here? And of course, even from a Buddhist perspective, we say to learn, to learn about life, the nature of life, to learn about the nature of our minds and bodies. And also then, um, was a very rational, intelligent, and intellectual person. And uh, my, and I really said he was such a hard worker when he was researching and writing, and especially 
as he was uh, one of the editors in the 1970s for the Buddhist newsletter, a journal really, Meta, which was the journal of the Feder uh, Buddhist Federation of Australia. And he was a good speaker too. And he could relate easily to people, presumably through his humour as well. And he gave talks on Buddhism. He gave many talks on Buddhism and history. And from what I gather, quite a down-to-earth down person, and as well as being compassionate, because he, he came from a nursing background. He was a nurse um, for most of his life. And of course, he was breaking new ground in lots of areas, like just being a male nurse is new ground. So he's courage, isn't it really? It's courage. And becoming a Buddhist at a time, uh, being interested in Buddhism at a time when Buddhism, very little was known about Buddhism, actually. So I'd just like to touch on Len's life now. And of course, as I mentioned, um, if you're interested in more detail, please see the, uh, the Newbury Buddhist Monastery website um, and uh, also the page for the, uh, the founders of the Buddhist Society of Victoria. And it's included in the QR code of the banner that you saw, that original slide that you saw when we started the talk. And of course, there's that book I mentioned, The History of Buddhism in Australia. And of course, Elizabeth Bell's book, A History of Buddhism in Victoria. That's, it's not, it's not quite a book really, it's quite a pamphlet, but it's more, um, it's not as long. So Lynn was born in 1927 in Richmond, when it wasn't trendy to live in Richmond. It was quite a poor area, in fact. And he didn't even finish high school. So it's admirable that he was dedicated to learning and educating himself. Um, and, and quite interestingly, I'm not quite sure why that happened, he uh, volunteered as, uh, uh, for the St John's Ambulance while he was a teenager. This is quite unusual, I think, for any teenagers. If, today or any other time. And in 1945, he joined the army. And this, the brigade that he joined went to Japan as part of the occupation forces just after the war. And uh, because of his St. John's ambulance training, he was uh, put in the brigade's medical team and that uh, they were based near Hiroshima. And he spent 19, uh, February 1946 to October 1947 in Japan. And interestingly, I think this is sort of, it sounds like a coincidence really, Les Oates, another founder of the, the Buddhist Society, was living in Hiroshima, around near, Hir near Hiroshima at that time. But he never met uh, Len then. Quite, quite amazing. But the importance of mentioning Len's time in Japan is, as his daughter mentions and Irene mentions, Japan had a profound effect on him um, because he saw people that uh, didn't express anger towards the occupation forces and who were calm and always calm and polite. And that must have made him, as it would make me wonder, what is it about these people? How can they be like this? And of course, uh, that sparked his interest, uh, I presume, in Buddhism. It also affected his life in another two ways. He became a nurse uh, when he came back to Australia and spent many years at the Repat Hospital here in Melbourne. And uh, of course, as I mentioned, he developed that interest in Buddhism, particularly Zen Buddhism, because that was that is from Japan. And 
The other aspect that came out of his experience in Japan was a lifelong interest in history, um, and particularly numismatics. Numismatics, hard to say, isn't it? Which is the study of coins, tokens, medals, and papers, according to Wiktionary. But after, and it's quite interesting in his life, after his retirement from nursing in the 90s, he was studying at La Trobe University. And what did he study? Sanskrit, <laughs> because it's a, one of the, a very important language for Buddhist texts. Of course, Pali is the, is the, uh, the language used in the uh, Theravada tradition and possibly close to what the Buddha spoke. And he studied that um, and received a Bachelor of Arts uh, at La Trobe University in a postgraduate diploma. And now we can have slide two again, if Ignacio, if you could show that. So let me just show slide two again. Oh, wait a minute, no, it says, uh, no, it's slide five, sorry. Slide five, wait a minute, slide five, sorry. That, that's it, so you can see Len there with his uh, degree, his bachelor degree. And so that's quite wonderful that he continued learning. And this was before the, the idea of the University of the Third Age. So now that's, I think that's, and we can see Len in, I think it says in Adelaide, in, uh, um, in the zoo in Adelaide, where I gather Nairi was living, maybe still living in Adelaide. So thank you very much for that, Ignacio. And we can move on to Len's contribution to the BSV. And of course, it's a really, it's hard to um, emphasize enough how important his contribution was because in that time, uh, you know, for 50s um, and before that, actually in the 20th century, there's very little information about Buddhism. It was really scarce. And uh, it's so admirable that with very limited resources, financial resources and resources in terms of number of uh, people involved, that they were able to nurture the Dhamma seedling, uh, and which enabled the, the um, Buddhist community to grow, to continue and grow. And it's quite uh, amazing how many groups, <laughs> how many of the people who started new group, Buddhist groups, came actually originally to the Buddhist society. You see a lot of them actually. So the founding of the Buddhist society, for many people don't know the history of that. I just mentioned uh, briefly. Before the, of course, in the 19th century, there were Buddhists, uh, Chinese, would come for the gold rush, but most of them went home. And also that was in the 1840s on, late 1840s um, for the gold rush. And they had temples and things like that or groups. Um, and also in Queensland, they had uh, some Sri Lankans who came and uh, would have had, a, they did have a temple on Thursday Island, which, and they had a tree, that they, a Bodhi tree that they planted there in 1890. So quite amazing, it was there, but by the 20th century, there wasn't much immigration, so that Buddhism had faded away and uh, information uh, about Buddhism uh, centers, Buddhist centers did not exist. So everybody that was interested in Buddhism at that time was a matter of studying on their own and writing, corresponding with others. And of course, the Theosophical Society was a great source of information at that time, as it was when I was uh, looking into Buddhism in the 70s and the 80s. So 
we, uh, so because of his interest, of course, then he was looking for other Buddhists. And uh, in, um, on the 18th of April, 1953, the Buddhist society was effectively born, so Paul Croucher says, and it was by Len Bullen and Sidney Hill and a couple of others. They don't mention who a couple of others were. And it met because there was no centre. This is a very interesting thing. So it met in a coffee shop. They met in a coffee shop every week in Swanston Street. But they put notices in the paper and this attracted others, including uh, Les Oates, who was such an important um, uh, motivator for the Buddhist society. And in October 1953, they actually had their first public meeting. So this is, this is really, in a sense, when the Buddhist society uh, came into existence. And this was in uh, Russell Street, Savoy Building in Russell Street. And Elizabeth Bell said it was a great success. And they had regular meetings after that on alternate Tuesday nights. So, uh, and in November that year, so the, the month after, they formed a committee with Ned Bullen as president and Sydney Hill as secretary. With the society's aim, and this is, this is interesting, it's still the same today, really. I haven't checked the constitution, but the study, the practice, and the realisation of Dhamma. That's wonderful, the study, practice, and realisation of Dhamma. And Len Henderson comes into the picture now, because in December 1953, he attended his first meeting and he said, um, there, there were 22 people at it. And I liked his little comment. He said, a two of whom were little old ladies collecting religions. <laughs> Quite funny. And uh, in fact, in uh, three years later, in May 1956, Len was elected as president of the Buddhist Society of Victoria. And now, Ignacio, if we could have the photo of uh, slide two, that shows the founders. Again, just show that, that uh, in 1959, uh, the Buddhist Federation of Australia was formed in Sydney on the 30th of August. So this is this slide you're seeing, the, 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 uh, the main photo with those people. They were the founders of this Buddhist Federation, which was really a combination of the uh, Buddhist Society of Victoria and the Buddhist Society of New South Wales. So thank you very much for that, Ignacia. That's good. And uh, I like what Paul Croucher says about uh, the contribution of Len uh, Henderson and also Leslie Oates. He said, then for many years, these two, Leslie Oates, an impressive intellectual, and Len Henderson, an impressive wit, were to be the driving force for the Buddhist Society of Victoria. And in the early, late 1950s and early 1960s, for many years, they met um, each Thursday night at the Henry George Club room in the city in Melbourne. And uh, one night a month, they had chanting and meditation. So, and uh, they also had another meeting for organisational matters. And uh, at the fortnightly talks, Len uh, contributed uh, talks on Buddhism along with uh, other, other Buddhist uh, society members, Max Dunn, Les Oates, and uh, Max Dunn and Les Oates, and Len for that matter, who were all chiefly interested in Zen. It's quite interesting. The early members, I think uh, Paul Croucher says, out of the six, of, uh, six early members, four were interested in Mahayana 
and particularly probably Zen Buddhism. And uh, Fred Whittle was also there giving talks and he would talk about some aspect of Theravada and his experiences as a monk because he had ordained in, uh, I think in Thailand actually. And, um, and Len Bullen would also give uh, talks at least uh, every, every second join in in contributing talks uh, when they had them every two weeks and he had an emphasis on practical buddhism and uh, and paul croucher noticed there was never any shortage of topics and uh, les oates and lynn henderson in particular were very widely read and able to lecture on anything at a short note anything to do with buddhism on at short notice and in 1965 les uh, Lesos became a lecturer, so he sort of uh, was less uh, involved with the Buddhist society. And then Len became the group's intellectual mainstay, as well as its chief organiser, it says. And uh, in the 1960s, things were mid-1960s, uh, the BSV the, uh, Raft of Dhamma was foundering, the membership was down to 20. But gradually towards the end of the late uh, 60s with the when they moved to a meeting at Elizabeth Bell's home uh, the numbers picked up and they were even able to start a series of they called them symposiums but I think today we would probably call them retreats but they called them uh, symposiums and they had one symposium like this in, that's uh, mentioned in 1969 over the Queen's birthday uh, holiday long weekend from the 7th to the 9th of June in 1969. And they had it in the country in um, a guest house in Warburton. And they had talks by Len, by Les Bullen and Ken Shand, and also Elizabeth Bell. And uh, Len gave talks on history of Buddhism, because he had a very uh, a lifelong interest in history, as well as uh, talking about Mahayana and Theravada. And they had some meditational and devotional se sessions as well. So it gives you a feel for what the Buddhist society was doing in those days. And it gives you a feel for the different uh, characters and the different interests within the Buddhist society. And uh, in the late 1960s, uh, Len married uh, Joan, and, uh, whom he met uh, through Buddhist circles, I think mainly through Max Tan. So now we can have a photo of Len in the 70s, because we're getting to the 70s. So you now see, oh, that's it, that's it, that's right. That slide is yes, the black and white one. So this is Len in the 70s. And in the 1970s, the uh, Buddhist Federation of Australia moved to Melbourne. It had problems in New South Wales. Elizabeth Bell became the chairperson. And Len and Larry Fayers of Jessup became the editors of the Meta, the Meta, it's called Meta, the Journal of the Buddhist Federation of Australia. And I know Paul Croucher says that um, Len's editorials were refreshing uh, and a, a, a great uh, attraction in the, the Meta Journal when he was editing. And Nairi told us, told me how much he put into writing, researching for his, his contributions to the Meta Journal. And Paul Croucher even noticed, notes that he, he dared to use the Sanskrit version of uh, the Dhammapada, we say in Pali, but Dharmapada, uh, Dhammapada, say in uh, Sanskrit. 
1974, Lem was involved, probably instrumental in helping for the purchase, cleaning and setting up of the first BSV Buddha Society of Victoria Centre in Mary Street, Richmond. So that's a really major attract, uh, 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 event, really, because then it gave him uh, a permanent home, as it were, for meeting. Uh, but in 1975, Len uh, Henderson resigned his position in the BSV committee and, and, and as the editor of the Meta Journal. Things have changed, uh, you know, his friends, the, the other members that he had worked with, like Les, Les Oates, had moved on. And also the character of the BSV was changing and many others were coming in who uh, wished to give their energy to the new, uh, to the Buddha Society of Victoria, particularly the Sh uh, Sri Lankan members who were beginning to uh, become involved with the BSV. And I like what Paul Croucher says about the contribution of, that uh, Len made. No one had done more to promote Buddhism in Victoria nor with such good humour. So that's lovely. Now we can have a slide, Ignacio, from the uh, 1980s, slide four. Says, that's right, that's Len in the 1980s. So we're seeing impermanence, aren't we? <laughs> Change. And in the 1980s, uh, Len joined the Melbourne Zen group and he was a member in 1988 when Paul Crouch wrote his book, but he didn't stay there. He didn't stay in the Zen group. Um, for a long period. He also attended other talks by well-known Buddhists like Thich Nhat Hanh, any of these uh, major teachers that were coming to Melbourne. But in the 80s also, he, he and uh, uh, Joan supported um, the Sangha, supported Buddhism, preserve, helped preserve Buddhism uh, by supporting a young 14-year-old uh, Tibet, Tibetan boy who was doing his studies in India but had no had, did not have enough funding to, to finish his schooling. And they supported him all the way through his education, through, um, through high school, university, and he even did a PhD. And they didn't have support. They weren't going through any official agency. They did it privately. And um, they, this, uh, the Tibetan boy who was 14 is now Dr. Lobsang Dorji Rabling, and he's an academic in the Central Institute of Higher Tibetan Studies in Sarnath in India. So he's can, and they continue their, they have continued their contact with him. And of course, today we reflect too that uh, Len's giving us a gift, isn't he? <laughs> it's always the case when someone passes away. They're reminding us that our bodies, all our bodies must die someday. It's universal, it's not Buddhist, it's not Christian, it's not any particular nationality or religion. And it's a wake up call for all of us that we should do what's really important. And so this is really the, the message from uh, Len's death, from every death really. And it reminds me of a, a sign I saw in a cafe where I used to, when I used to go an arms round near the Buddhist society, in East Malvern, down at Carnegie, there was a cafe and it had life is too short, start with dessert first. In other words, do what's important, what really matters. And of course, this is the essence of the Buddha's teaching, isn't it? That uh, nothing lasts, it's impermanent and Nietzsche. Just like the morning dew on the flowers, on the grass, 
evaporates when the sun rises. So this is the focus of the Buddha's teaching is how to deal with old age, sickness and death. And it propelled the Buddha to find a solution to old age, sickness and death. And uh, so this is the essence of Four Noble Truths and particularly looking at impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and that there isn't a permanent self. These are very key insights that lead to enlightenment, to awakening. And then allowing a person to uh, finish with being reborn again and again and into Nibbana or Nirvana. So it's important and it reminds us that it really in, in the Buddha's teaching, thank you very much Ignacio, we can finish with that slide now, <laughs> it's good, just remembered. Important to remember it's only the body that dies, um, the mind will move on and, and that's the way of, that it happens for uh, in, in terms of the Buddhist teachings, that's what the Buddha taught. The mind will move on to a new destination. So when we are facing death, the key qualities, I've been mentioning it this week actually uh, in talks in, after the meal, that uh, peace, if we have a peace, peace of mind that comes from um, being at peace with ourselves and others, uh, and a peace that comes from forgiving ourselves and others. I hope... Uh, this is a very important part of when somebody passes away, that we ask forgiveness of them, but not only that, that we give our forgiveness to them. Because life is like this, you know, we, we do rub up against each other, do hurt each other, sometimes, oftentimes, unintentionally. And of course, you know, the wisdom brings peace, doesn't it? When we can accept that death of the body is part of life. And I like what Joan said, you know, when we spoke, she said, it's used by date had come, you know, the body is used by date had come. And of course, as I mentioned before, one of the key qualities when we're facing death, besides peace, is thankfulness for all the good things in our lives, our relationships, possessions and opportunities. So these are um, important um, things. And of course, when we when people are passing away, we always encourage them to think of the good that they've done in this life, you know, all those things. And it can bring a feeling of satisfaction, a sense of having done our best. So I'd just like to pass on to Len's legacy to us. So this shows a little bit of what's happening now. So Ignacio, if you could put slide seven on, that would be good. So you can see here, this is the Buddhist center in uh, East Melbourne. So after the Buddhist center uh, was established in Mary Street, Richmond in 1975, it moved to this new location, East Melbourne, Darling Road, East Melbourne, in um, I think it was 1994 uh, or 95, um, it was established there. And next year, it's quite interesting, will be the 70th anniversary of the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Amazing, isn't it? And uh, so we have the Buddhist Society there, and you can see Ajahn Brahm here in the uh, one photograph. He is the spiritual advisor for the Buddhist Society and has been for many years. And also um, there is the, I think, New Year, a photo of the New Year 
um, celebration that we had only a few, uh, few months ago with the monks, three monks, I think, and four nuns, I believe. And in 2007, um, the Buddhist Society established Sangamitarama, which is a residence for bhikkhunis. These are fully ordained Buddhist nuns. And so now, Ignacio, if you could uh, show slide eight, photo slide eight, there we are. So in 2014, Buddhist Society established Newbury Buddhist Monastery. This photo is of the Sangha, a recent photo was December 2021, which is not far. Everybody says, where is Newbury? It's not far from Trentham. It's 150 acres and it's a beautiful property, uh, but it's cold because it's sub-alpine. And it's catering for, it's for the fourfold community, Buddhist community, we say. So that's, of course, the bhikkhunis, the fully ordained nuns. And uh, now we have uh, four nuns, um, two of whom are bhikkhunis and two are novices. And it's for the, uh, the monks, the bhikkhu sangha. Uh, these are fully ordained monks. And we have five at present. But it's also for laymen and upasikas and laymen and upasikas. And in 2020, um, uh, the new monk section was built in at one end, the other end of the property from the main area where the uh, current, the old buildings are. And in 2022, this year, the building of the Meditation Retreat Centre is going on as I speak. So at the end of this year, there'll be a Meditation Retreat Centre, which will mean that the um, uh, the lay community uh, will have a, a place where they can do retreats and where they can offer the uh, lunch dana and also a place that they can stay. They can do their self-retreats. They can also join in other retreats. So now I'd like to finish off by uh, doing the chanting. And Ignacio, if you could bring up slide six, that would be good. So I'll do the chanting and first, I'll, I'll do most of it in English because it's much easier. It'll be, I'll leave that uh, photo, uh, most of the uh, photo up too as I do it. Impermanent indeed is everything of the nature to arise and decay. Having arisen, they cease. The going out of them is bliss. Anicca vata sankara upadavaya damino upanjitva nirojanti te sangupasamo sukho. So that's the Pali of that. And of course, this is a traditional chant we do at Buddhist funerals. Um, of course, reflecting on impermanence. And now we can do the dedication of merit for Len. And you can think of offering him a gift of this, of the goodness in your life that you've done. This is for your relatives. May they be happy. 
Idang bonyati nang hotu, sukita on tunyatayo. Idang bonyati nang hotu, sukita on tunyatayo. Idang bonyati nang hotu, sukita on tunyatayo. May you abide in well-being, in freedom from affliction. In freedom from hostility, in freedom from your will, in freedom from anxiety, and may you maintain well-being in yourself. So, Len, wish you a farewell. You wish you well on your journey. Uh, of course, unless you attain nibbana or nibbana. And may all the good karma that you've karma that you've made, especially at the BSV, but I'm sure there's much other good karma, take you to a good and happy rebirth, where you have all the necessities of life, where you are safe, at peace and happy. And may you have contact with the Dharma again. So we say in Pali, we say, Sadhu Len, and thank you, Len. And I'd like to thank everyone for participating in this reflection, who've watched it, and uh, to thank particularly uh, Joan Henderson, um, uh, Len's wife, and uh, Len's daughter, Nairi, for being so helpful and willing to share about Len's life. I hope I've done justice <laughs> to his life. And I'd also like to thank the nuns at Newbury Buddhist Monastery for all the information and photos they uh, that some photos they found, which is quite amazing, and especially to Aya Santa, one of the nuns who has prepared the photos and links for this for further information, the web page she's done. And also Ignacio and to all the others in the technology team at the Buddhist Society of Victoria. But thank you very much for making this broadcast possible. So I'd like to finish there and ask uh, if there are any um, comments or questions. So, sadhu to Len, and uh, now we can open up. I hope that was of interest to you, um, that reflection, and helpful for the family um, to remember Len and remember his contribution. Thank you, Arjun. Uh, at the moment, we have four questions that have come through. Oh, good. I'll start with the first one. What sort of panya do Buddhist monks develop? What sort of panya? Panya. Oh, panya. panya. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Panya. All right. That's it. I was trying to think. What is this? <laughs> what is this word? A panya is a word for wisdom. Um, I think it's not only for Buddhist monks. It's for all Buddhist practitioners. The wisdom is the same. It's really understanding the Four Noble Truths, the nature of uh, the First Noble Truth of suffering or unsatisfactoriness is, is a very good translation because unsatisfactoriness uh, strikes at the heart of our difficulties, our suffering in a sense, where it's because it's, we're not getting what we want. Um, and that is part of that is parting from those that are cl we're close to, as the Buddha said, that is... Uh, unsatisfactory for us and being associated with those that we we don't find easy to be with that's also unsatisfactory 
Um, and he even goes deeper than that, of course. He says, having a body and mind is actually the foundation for um, our difficulties, unsatisfactoriness, for suffering. So, of course, the Buddha's aim is for us, and for us, is to, to put an end to come, coming back, to being reborn again and again. And, of course, second noble truth, seeing what's the cause of this uh, suffering, and, of course, that is our desire, our wanting, we call it craving, tanha in Pali. Um, that's what causes us. We are here again because we want to be here again as part of rebirth. We want to be here to experience all the things we like, the people we like, the situations we like. And we, we have this uh, the wanting to just be, actually. Uh, on occasions, there's also a desire just to annihilate everything, finish everything. And uh, the next, uh, the third noble truth, of course, is the ending of uh, unsatisfactoriness, of suffering. And that's coming to peace, that's letting go of all that wanting that will take us to a rebirth. And the fourth noble truth, of course, is the path, how to do it, how to do it. And that's the noble eightfold path of right view, right intention, right uh, speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, we say, and right mindfulness and then right samadhi. This is the way to do it. But in essence, the wisdom that all Buddhists would be aiming at is to really, and it's the, the key one for awakening, is seeing that everything doesn't last in this world. Everything that comes from a cause will end. Uh, this body is a very good example. And our mind states too, they're changing perpetually like the weather. So this understanding of a per impermanence in Nietzsche in Pali is what propels one into the first stage of enlightenment. So it's very, very important. And what a person at that stage sees is not only is everything impermanent, but this, uh, this sense of self, this character, this personality I take to be me is also impermanent. It's changing all the time. And uh, it's changing. Sometimes you think, well, maybe it's changing quite gradually <laughs> in some cases. So uh, that is an important, that's one of the key things to see that uh, the sense of self is actually uh, this view of the self is actually what uh, is not true, is not reality. And of course, with that too, when things are impermanent, they're going to bound to be unsatisfactory. So if everything's impermanent, and we see it in our lives too, don't we? <laughs> Even things we like, if we have them long enough, we think if we eat our favorite food, as I often say, for long enough, we soon won't, won't be our favorite food, it will be torture. So things, all of our, all our life is based on change. So they're the important insights that uh, a Buddhist monk, a Buddhist nun, a Buddhist practitioner sees really um, in, uh, we're aiming to see in our lives. So I hope that answers somewhat the question. It's a big area, you know, <laughs> talking about Panya wisdom. Yeah. So thank you for that. Thank you, Arjun. Um, so the second question here, um, what is the biggest difference between Mahayana and Theravada? Is it important to adhere only to one of them to practice meditation? Thank you. 
Right. And what's the difference between uh, Theravada and Mahayana? And uh, is it important to stick to one for uh, in our meditation practice? Well, the uh, big difference is is the emphasis on what they call in uh, Mahayana bodhisattvas. Um, and so this is a person who puts off the enlightenment in order to aid other people becoming enlightened. So that's probably the biggest difference because in Theravada, the Buddha, of course, is encouraging us all, really, to get out of the burning house as quickly as possible. <laughs> and, and that only happens when we see that the house, we really understand, yep, this house is burning, this body and mind, this world, this samsara that we live in is really burning. It's not, not the playground that we often think it is. So that's the big difference. And of course, the, the Buddha mentions that uh, an awakened or uh, enlightened being can be a great benefit to those who are seeking enlightenment. Uh, otherwise, it's a bit like the blind leading the blind. So this is a big difference, really. This um, uh, this quality of bodhicitta, they often call it um, as well, you know, to want to help other beings attain enlightenment. And this is a very fine um, emotion to have, a fine uh, desire to have. Uh, it's one of the good desires as leads, it leads to a spiritual growth because um, it's based on compassion too. And this is what drove the Buddha, isn't it? Really, that compassion to help uh, living beings as much as possible. So that's the, um, uh, you know, in a nutshell, how I see it anyway, I'm not an expert <laughs> on the difference between Mahayana and Theravada. And uh, of course, there are great practitioners in both traditions and there's some very, very impressive um, practitioners, as I say, in both traditions. And as to meditation, I think, um, you know, I always reflect uh, on what uh, Ayakima, one of my teachers, important teachers for me, said, said in meditation, whatever works is the right meditation for you. If it's leading to more peace, to more insight, to more wisdom, um, uh, to more joy in your, in your practice, then this is leading in the right direction because it's looking inwards. So whether it be Theravada um, meditation practice or Mahayana, there's a lot of overlap really because in the end, whether it's Theravada, Mahayana or Vajrayana, the Tibetan traditions, it all is focusing on the mind, really understanding the mind, developing the mind, reducing our negative qualities, the defilements, the hindrances that are blocking meditation. So in actual fact, it's really, it's, it really comes down to whatever works for developing the mind and developing in what? In wholesome qualities, good qualities that lead to really clarity, that lead to the stillness that brings clarity. Um, without some degree of stillness in the mind, we won't see anything. Our, our vision will be too shaky. Our experience will be like somebody trying to hold something still but moving all over the place. You cannot, we cannot penetrate. We cannot see clearly what's going on. So I think really as if we find uh, um, uh, Theravada tradition or Mahayana, no matter, 
And often it comes down to really finding a teacher, a meditation teacher we really gel with, you know, that really connect with. And that can be uh, very, very helpful. So I hope that answered to a small degree. It's a big, big subject, but I think to a large degree, um, yeah, it, it doesn't matter. It's a matter of the mind. All right, thank you very much for that question. Thank you, Arjun. Um, we have two questions left. Um, so the next question says, how do I make peace with my wrongdoing? How do I make peace with my wrongdoing? I think the way we can make peace with our wrongdoing is realizing, as I do, I realize for myself too, how conditioned we are. We, we take it that we're a person that's doing this wrongdoing. But a lot of it is just conditioning, programming, habit. You could say habit is another word, good you, for conditioning. That is running our lives. And to have this kindness, always have kindness for ourselves is very important. Um, even when we're disappointed with ourselves. I think that's a test of kindness, actually. When we actually think, wow, I really mucked up, <laughs> I really messed up. Uh, and to still have kindness is, is a sign of uh, the path it's developing. So that is an uh, important way we can um, uh, deal with our own wrongdoing. But of course, the important thing too is to find, to develop the determination not to do it again. We can bring that up um, and uh, see the disadvantage in that wrongdoing. It's much easier to give something up when we can actually say, wow, this is not leading to my happiness and well-being. It's just, it's the opposite. And when we see that, it's possible to say, look, I want to finish with that. And to see the happiness, this is very important really, in not going in that direction, not doing that, not saying that, whatever the wrongdoing is, not thinking that. And then um, seeing that happiness gives us the energy, the wearier to not do it and uh, and be free from something that really is binding us, is really um, holding us down. So thank you very much for that. And I think the last question. Thank you, Arjun. Yes, we have uh, the last question and it's a Sutta question. All so, right. Good. According to the Dana Sutta, one gets the highest result of a donation when one gives it with a thought, this is an ornament for the mind, a support for the mind. Mm. Can you please clarify what is meant by an ornament for the mind, a support for the mind? Right. Yes. Yes, that is, that's one of the highest forms. It is the highest form of giving that, that the Buddha mentions, you know, the giving with this thought that it will, it will, it will make the mind beautiful, basically. And what, what that means is that these wholesome qualities, these good qualities, it's coming up and uh, coming up in the mind. It's, it's bringing joy, really. It's bringing a lot of joy, call it in Pali, piti, and a lot of happiness into the mind. And it's, it's a mind state that doesn't have a lot of what am I going to get out of this? There isn't, actually. The other forms of uh, uh, motivation for giving, they have that to uh, some degree, you know, it'll be good, it'll lead to a good rebirth or, you know, it'll make for my happiness and well-being. But this as an ornament is just the joy in giving, just the joy in practicing, just the happiness that comes from that. And it just makes the mind totally radiant. And sometimes I've met people 
And I see them, seen them on the, the arms round. This is where Buddhist monks usually collect food in the morning, early morning at that. And uh, I've seen people just their eyes sparkling, radiant. And I think, you know, it's my projection, of course. This is that joy, that beauty, that um, uh, uh, ornamenting of of the mind. So that's what the the uh, the Buddha is referring to, because a mind that is like that is really going to be very easy, easily focused, very easily come to stillness, to samadhi, or one-pointedness. And when a mind can do that, of course, from one-pointedness, the Buddha says, we'll see things as they truly are, because the mind will be still enough, powerful enough for insight to arise. So this is what... Uh, um, the Buddha is referring to, you know, we're so keen, aren't we, <laughs> on external ornaments, you know, whether they're jewellery and all these things. But the idea of this beautiful mind, the jewellery of the mind, is something that uh, is a bit strange for us, but it is an actual fact where we live, where we're coming from is the mind that we experience the world through. So thank you very much for that. And um, I had better, I've got to get ready to go for our lunch, lunch data soon. So thank you for that question. And thank you very much, Ignacio, for looking after today's um, Sunday program. And for those who would like to, um, uh, to pay respects to the Buddha, Dhamma and the Sangha, we can do that just with this chant. But some of you all know, I think.